I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Do you know those terms, biohacking, you know, things like ice bath and cold exposure and red light therapy? And do you know about primal fitness, primal diet, guided tantra, holotropic breath work? There's a ton of those terms that I know very little about. And today's guest is a professional biohacker and primal health coach. Charlene Giselle was not always into health. As a matter of fact, she was a successful lawyer, a Cambridge University law graduate and a litigation lawyer, as a matter of fact. And going through that crazy pace and stressful lifestyle, her delusional view of the world shattered when her father, who was also a highly successful but also very stressed lawyer, had a heart attack and a stroke while she was in the middle of an important trial. The concern for losing her father, coupled with the stress of her own work as a lawyer, ended up uh, getting her to burnout. It was then that she made this dramatic decision to step away from the crazy pace and make a drastic change to the way of her life. She embarked on a world health and wellness tour where she went to India and to Bali and to other places and trained, or let's say retrained, as a qualified primal health coach and a corporate wellness consultant. Her focus now is to train others, corporate executives, lawyers, and those who are living the delusion about health and well-being so that they don't experience the same stress and burnout that she did. This is going to be a very interesting conversation for me because I know very little about those things. And Charlene seems to be at the far extreme of some of those concepts. I think you want to hold out until you hear her views on veganism, for example, or Tantra. Gearing up for an interesting new conversation with Charlene Giselle. Hi. Hi, I'm so excited to meet you. I can't believe actually this is happening. <laughs> I'm so excited to meet you. I'm, I just said in my introduction that this is going to be the most interesting conversation ever because what you're an expert in, I know absolutely nothing about. I have no- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that cannot be true, Mo. I'm sure that cannot be true. It is 100% true. I'm like, you know, I prepped and I watched you so passionately and dynamically talking on podcasts and in speeches and so on. And I'm like, oh my God, there is a whole world out there. (laughs) I I don't know any of those words. It's so good that you're here. Thank you. Well, it's an absolute honor to be here today. So I just wanted to really express that because it's uh, super special for me to be talking to you. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. Where in the world are you? You're a nomad. I am. Yes, I am. I have become one. It wasn't the case, but this was part of my tabula rasa plan when I 
left my corporate lawyer career behind and I decided to become a nomadic. Um, that was back in 2018, actually. I left London. I had a very fancy job, very fancy flats. The list of uh, material oh, accumulation yeah. had gone high up <laughs> very quickly. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, as the success went up, the unhappiness went down, which now I understand why, as a, I understand yes. the power of the equation. But back then, I thought that I had it all on paper, when in fact, there was a big hole in my heart. Oh, I know the feeling so well. I know the feeling entirely. Right. Yeah. Yes. And I resonated so much with your story. And I think it's beautiful to have been in these positions of power when you have been corporate trained and you went to great university and you went to great job. And I love my former colleagues and I would do it all over again, to be honest, because it made me the person that I am and gave me the business skills that I have. But I was so glad that I left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was just waiting for that, but it's like, you, know, you know, it was, the, they're, they're amazing. I love them and everything, but, but <laughs> let me tell you. Well, it was a breakthrough and that's what I always say. A breakthrough is a moment in time when you draw the line and you say, that's it, I've had enough, right? Mm, mm. So you didn't tell me, where in the world are you now? I didn't answer the question. I'm in London, in Northwood, North London. Okay. And I'll be here until the end of June. And then I'm going back to my summer house in France, in Bordeaux, next to the nice. vineyards. So very lucky. Yeah, I'm completely confused about this. You know, I lived like a nomad for a very long time, actually. I, since my wonderful ex and I separated, I lived in probably eight places. Actually, it even started before that. I, I hired the most incredible assistant. We used to call her a little chief. And she was really, she just simply came to my office one day and, you know, she just joined. She was brilliant, an MBA from Stanford, uh, used to be the assistant of the CEO of Kia in America. And you know how it is, busy executive. So as she walks in, I say, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, it's wonderful. Here are my travel guidelines. I want this, this, this and that. Here is how it works, that, 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 that. And she said, okay, and then disappeared for a couple of days and came back with a presentation that basically proved to me that I was killing myself. She was so good at it. You know, she said, look, you know, your travel style is horrible. Your eating style is horrible. Your resting style is horrible. I want to have a job for a long time, so I don't want you to die. And she literally sat me down and said, let's change all of this. So part of my nomadic lifestyle, which at the time was to spend two days in every country, changed into spending a week in every country. And then of course, after I left Google, it became spending several months in every country. But I still am unable to balance it, to be honest. So how do you do it? I mean, you don't miss that feeling of like, I need a home type thing? I did for a while, but I think when you get to the point where you actually go from everything materially to nothing and you strip it all out. So I went quite radical. I guess I liked the idea of a radical challenge. But when I arrived in the ashram in India, I really had nothing, just the equivalent of suitcase, bare minimum. And that was from whole life of material accumulation in Chelsea, working in the city of London. And I remember the feeling of just being sat in the ashram, monks asking me to meditate. And I had no label to hide behind. I had no business card. I had no fancy office. I had no power. 
Mm. And so I had no ego. And that is very confronting. I love that. Yeah. And I remember the very first day and I was asked to breathe. Um, I know, well, (laughs) four years later, I've become a breathwork facilitator. But I remember when I was prompted to breathe, it was genuinely the most foreign concept that I've ever heard of. Right? Breathing? What do you mean? I breathe all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then I was thinking, right, I've gone through top university, top law firm. I consider myself fairly well educated. And yet I had no clue about basic wellness, about my physiology, about my basic needs. In fact, I would go as far as saying that I spent years denying my physiology and working against my physiology and against my basic needs. And there was as to breathe, as to meditate. You mean not talking? I talk for a living. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. You asking a lawyer not to talk. <laughs> my words are charged per hour, right? Yeah, actually, Charlene, I will say openly that would be a great thing for the world. Like, can lawyers please stop talking? Like, you know, we're all. <laughs> I love all lawyers listening, but seriously, stop talking. <laughs> it makes our life better. I think that our words are our language, and that's something that is key to NLP coaching, right? Is our language is an extension of our thoughts, but sometimes we over we overuse it yeah. as in the same sense that we over overthink, we also overtalk. And there is such power in silence. Interesting. And in just mm. drawing the attention inwards to find that sense of peace and contentment. And although I found it to be one of the most challenging things ever to be sat down in silence so two things that were near impossible because i'm a lot more doing than being and my inner Mm. masculine energy was being very triggered and that's why i always enjoyed having positions that were sort of more masculine than feminine i would say more yang than yin so being asked to sit down okay i'm not doing anything and then to stay quiet, I can't even express myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> Such a challenge. And yet so healing. I was confronted. And, you know, this is how you make, you befriend your demons, right? Because you get to meet them. You become aware. And only through awareness, you can go into acceptance. And then you can move past the levels of consciousness and awareness. But I had no idea what I was missing before, you know, like I said, on paper, it was success, success, success. And if it wasn't for the fact that I went through a personal tragedy, having to witness my dad's heart attack and stroke and thinking that I was going to lose him and he was my role model, you know, my, my hero. And also the reason why I wanted to be so successful because I was walking in daddy's footsteps. And then having seen how he was so successful and yet on a hospital bed, nothing really mattered. Like not the wealth that he'd accumulated, not the beautiful business that he built. At the end of the day, he'd become sick because of stress. And there was nothing I could do either. And that really bugged me because I like to solve problems. And so I thought, you know, when the nurse told us that they were not sure he was going to make it and that he might need a lot of help after the stroke and the heart attack because we didn't know how much his brain would be affected. 
and that he will need maybe alternative medicine, maybe yoga, maybe breathing. I thought, well, I'm not going to let anyone else help my dad. I want to know how I can help my dad. And uh, yeah, he was one of the reasons I decided to to leave it all behind and to become a yoga teacher, to become a meditation teacher, because I thought, you know, everybody is somebody's dad, somebody's son, somebody's mother, somebody's daughter, and nearly losing mine, who's, you know, the person I love the most in the whole wide world, just seemed like it wasn't an option. Why do we wait? Why do we wait until we get those wake-up calls? Right, yeah. yeah. But isn't it part of the hero's journey, though, Mo, right? Mm. I wonder to what extent we can ever go through pure transformation without the catalyst of the pain. And I think that's also the Phoenix rising, right? It's, it is part of the hero's journey. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I always say that life sort of corners us, gives us the nudge, you know, the way I call it, only to either help us change direction or learn something new, right? Life doesn't want to annoy you. It just wants you to be in the best version of you, right? And because we resist so much, we get those challenges. If you learned the lesson, maybe the challenge wouldn't come. I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of hopeful that this is the case. So you go, you left everything. You left everything. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely everything, including my career, which, which was a very tough decision because uh, it was something that I was very proud of. Do you regret it at all? No, no, I don't. I don't because I'm actually still in a position where I can interact with a community that I adore, the legal community, and I can be the person that was missing in my life. So back then, I think genuinely that if I had someone that would have taught me the basic understanding of health and wellness, I could have maybe done what I was doing sustainably, but I didn't have a clue. I really genuinely did not think about my wellness. You know, and when you look at your peers and your role model, my ex's colleagues, they were not sleeping. They were not eating well. They were not really looking after themselves. So you just model and the norm becomes what you see and you model your peers, right? Because this is what you're told. And well, I didn't know better and I just, burnt out really to the point of exhaustion and i started to notice you know some of my colleagues were getting sick a lot of metabolic condition a lot of events but it was almost apparent to me that everyone was waiting for that big thing to happen and then try their hardest to cure it but i didn't see so many try to prevent it I'm quite solution orientated. And I think that's the reason I wanted to be a lawyer in the first place, because I love data and I love analysis. And I thought, well, what am I missing here? Like, what's the piece of the jigsaw that I'm not seeing? What's the piece of the puzzle? And I'm not blaming anyone. It wasn't done to me. It's something I accepted and I chose and pursued. Yeah. So it's not, oh, I suffered those years. It was a suffering that was kind of beautiful because it taught me so much. Oh, that's the best statement I could ever hear. It was suffering that was beautiful. That's actually very, I mean, I think all suffering is yields a learning, but to call it suffering that is beautiful, I've not heard that one before. So yeah, I'll remember that one. I'm going to be incredibly open and honest here. I mean, I've been watching your videos all day, so I'm completely entrenched with uh, Charlene Giselle, and I can see the passion, the incredible passion about everything that you do. And I can only picture 
that if you had put that passion into your legal work, you were literally killing yourself. Was that your case? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was, you know, I don't really believe in doing anything unless I'm pouring my heart and soul into it. And the thing is, if you do that in a corporate world, it's a recipe for disaster. It kills you. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. I mean, I'm not any different. I mean, when I was younger or your age, I, I definitely was killing myself in, in my corporate work as well. How do we get people to wake up? You use the word prevent instead of cure. And it's very, very regular in the high stress life that people wait until they burn out and then they collapse, right? And then they go to a doctor that tries to fix them or patch them for a, a while and then they collapse again. And, and it's actually very typical of Western medicine versus Eastern medicine is to wait until you're sick and then help cure you, right? What should people do to not fall into that trap? Well, what I found that works the best with my type of clientele, corporate, busy, lawyer, successful, high-performing executive, is actually to make them understand that that success is scientific, but them not looking after their health is leaving money on the table. Because very savvy <laughs> okay. business people, right? No, but it's true because all the savvy business lawyers and executives that we know they love success and they have very clear KPIs, investment strategies, billable hours. They have very clear objectives that are defined, concrete, attainable, measurable, trackable, right? So if you start to just see to what extent they can draw a parallel mindset to their wellness and just confront them with the reality of, okay, so what's your wellness goal this month? Whoa, 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 whoa. what do you mean? I don't have wellness <laughs> goals. I have work goals. I hear you, but to what extent do you really think you are at your most productive when you haven't slept for three days? Is the quality of your work really outstanding or is it going down slowly into more mediocre and still you sleep again and up and down? And are you on that roller coaster? And are you spending hours on that brief? Because you simply have neglected your basic physiology, right? So when you start thinking and talking in terms that they care about, aka success at work, peak performance, I think that's the incentive. Because at least in, in the world that I know, and I don't claim to know all the corporate world, but particularly within the legal sector, there is not really a perception of wellness as something to cultivate it's more something to use and abuse to get to a point which is where we want to get to in terms of measuring success and it's really about stopping that constant chase of outsourcing happiness and outsourcing success because that's an illusion really and drawing yourself back inwards so it can be very simple, actually. I, I really like to present tools that are very accessible. You know, I think a lot of very, very busy, successful men and women don't necessarily have the time to commit for one hour class or two hours class or three hours class. But if you tell them every day that they can breathe a little different, that they can think a little different, then those are incremental changes that are going to compound into a huge amount of personal transformation at the end of the year. So I'm a firm believer into baby changes that are consistent rather than radical changes. 
I think that's a very, very, very eye-opening view. I mean, of course, my entire mission is about saying, hey, you should actually change the objective. You should make it clear that your happiness, your well-being is as important an objective as your success. You're saying, let's not have that conversation yet. Let's just make you more successful by making you happier and have better well-being. Yeah. And then when you taste it, you're going to go like, hmm, I want more of this. You know, it's actually more interesting than the success I've been chasing that doesn't actually translate into any tangible uh, benefit for me. I like that very much. I think that's very clever. What I don't understand though is, so, you know, when I was reading about you, you're a biohacker, you're a primal fitness expert. You have something that's called guided tantra, holotropic breath work. Okay. I don't know any of that. Nothing. Like I have no idea what any of this is. And I don't know how much time you have, but I'm going to ask about all of them if that's okay. Please do. I would love <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> so we go from the offices, from the corporate world, you go to meditation, very simple life. You drop everything. They teach you meditation and probably yoga. And, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. And I say it with a ton of love for any of my Indian teachers. I don't know if they're diet style is actually healthy at all. Ah, Mo, I love that you asked me that because this is where my journey took turns that I didn't expect. So I was very much on a quest. Think of me as, you know, that quest for, okay, what is the magic powder that I can bring back to the corporate world that I can say that I've found? So the way I approach my adventures around the world was not so much, okay, let me find a solution for myself. It was, yes, find a solution for myself, but to serve as many people as I can. Because one thing that was always in my heart when I left the law was to understand that the reason I wanted to be a lawyer in the first place was to serve others. So that intention remained with me. When I decided to leave the law, I stayed of service. So my quest started with, let's start with the basic, let's start with the body. And I went to India because it was really appealing to me, the idea of learning about meditation, the idea of learning about yoga. But there I found that actually uh, they had a whole lot of other issues relating to pre-diabetic condition, metabolic disorder, and that their nourishment was not really that good. So that made me sort of think, okay, I'm not really connecting all the dots here. I'm getting one piece, but I'm not getting all the pieces. So I need to continue on that quest and I need to investigate into nutrition. And I think it would be fair to say that I'm a bit of a excited learner, <laughs> a <laughs> lifetime student. I do like to learn a lot. And so I thought, okay, now I need to complete that understanding. Okay. I got the yoga qualification. I also went to Bali and I went to live on a tiny little island for six months in the middle of nowhere to have a very primal life. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to also study nutrition and study primal coaching and understand what it is that is missing in the equation because health is holistic, right? We can't just go to yoga and hope all our issues are resolved or just eat well and hope all our issues are resolved. And what I was noticing is that everyone I was going to was one thing and one thing only. So there was a sort of pigeonhole system of health. So you go to see your dietitian and the dietitian tells you that you eat this and that and only this and that, but they don't tell you how to think. Then you go to see a yoga teacher and they pay no attention to how you sleep. And then you go to see a PT 
and they don't tell you anything about the way you need to do your breathing for recovery. So I was just thinking, right, how many different outsourcing I'm going to have to be doing to integrate health and wellness? So I thought, right, I love technology. It served me well in my career because the second half of my career went from being a lawyer to working in legal tech. So how can I utilize technology to fast forward my quest for health? And this was how I discovered biohacking. I thought, okay, so there are all these incredible tools and technology that can enable us to track data. And through tracking data, it just calms me down because I can see results and I can see analysis and it tells a story. (laughs) I love data. The professional never goes away, right? It's like you're still there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely not. And and I thought, okay, so now I'm getting a lot of the wisdom that I've learned from my extraordinary tantra teachers and yoga teachers and meditation teachers. And I'm getting a lot of knowledge from the coaching that I received from the Primal Health Institute. And now I'm throwing in biohacking and I'm starting to see a picture that that is really making sense. And I thought this is going to be the angle that I can go back to corporate with because it's not some woo-woo, la-la-land story collecting from, you know, without disrespect, that would not go down well in corporate executive wellness workshops absolutely you can't talk about chakras and it's just the best way to lose your audience hallelujah listen (laughs) to this people i'll pause you here for a second because i honestly so i believe in a lot of things okay i know them internally in my heart but if i talk to people who are left-brained fast-moving executives about those things they'll drop you completely you need to speak a language that is actually relatable if you want to spread happiness, if you want to spread well-being. You have to speak the language of the person you're talking to, not the language of the person that taught you. And I think that translation is really, really important. Can I ask you, what does biohacking mean? Because, yes. you know, sometimes it's associated associated with like activities, things that you do for a shortcut or whatever. But you're saying, no, no, it's more data-driven and process-driven, is it? Yes. So biohacking is actually a term that uh, was born from the Silicon Valley. Dave Asprey calls himself the father of biohacking. And it's really the art of science of optimizing your internal biology as well as your external factor. So I'm going to give you a very concrete example. It's about understanding that you can, in fact, control yourself. So you're not ever going to be made to feel that there is a sort of genes fatality or nothing that you can do to take over your health because you're going to measure, track, and understand data. So there are different aspects of your life that we can biohack. The first one will be the breathing, right? We breathe over 22,000 times a day, and most of this is unconscious. And understanding the physiology of breathing is a very powerful way. Biohackers understand that when we have a longer exhale than an inhale, the heart rate goes down. So, you know, if someone is having an anxiety crisis and they go, they're just really, really having a shallow breathing through the chest. Most of my clients are chest breather because they're really shallow breather. I'll just go, okay, that's fine. Just inhale for two. You can do it with me now. And exhale for four. We're just going to do, we're going to do longer exhales than we do inhale. And what it does is physiologically, it slows the heart rate down very simple yet very powerful so this is just one example 
another example of biohacking is understanding that nutrition is about nutritional density. So it's not so much about what's the latest fat diet, it's about what it is that we as a human race that has taken 3 million years to evolve to the human that we are now, have needed to be the human that we are now. So although it's using science, it's also the secret art of looking backwards to move forward. And that's one of the things that I find very exciting about biohacking because as much as it takes into consideration neuroscience and physiology and high-tech science and high-tech technology, it also incorporates the wisdom that we accumulated. So another example that I could give you, something that biohackers love to do, is connecting with nature in a way that is uncomfortable. So one of the famous biohackers, Vin Hoff, who loved doing cold exposure, says that nature has so much to teach us by putting ourselves in uncomfortable zones. See, one of the problems that we have as a society right now is we live in AC room and we are indoors and we're wearing shoes. So we're constantly disconnected from our natural habitat, which is nature, right? Our natural habitat was never a flat or a house or a building. But just think of it, how many people will be even creeped out by the idea of not wearing shoes when they go and walk in nature, or they wouldn't want to be cold, or they don't want to be hot, or if it's either too something or too yeah. this or too that. I'm one of those for sure. <laughs> Is that wrong? What am I doing wrong? Well, not everything can be changed by a button. If you think about how we evolved as a species, we had to go through periods of extreme heat, extreme cold, famine. And that's what made us be where we are now. It's a sort of Darwinian type of evolution, right? So if we're constantly comfortable, when do we ever become extraordinary? Hold on, hold on, hold on. So this entire civilization that we live in is all about, let's make it easier, let's make it more comfortable, let's make it more pleasurable. And you're mm. saying this is this is the wrong thing for my health. Well, this is overweight. This is depression. This is type two diabetes. This is cardiovascular health. I mean, look at how well people are doing. Are they? <laughs> don't think so. I don't think When's so. The either. last time you saw someone that was truly fit, and I don't mean that from an aesthetic standpoint, like really fit and healthy, strong and resilient, resilient body, resilient mind, resilient mind, resilient mindset. We just are warriors that have been put to sleep, either through medication or self-soothing or emotional eating or Netflix. So we're always looking for outsourcing of things that illusionally make us feel good. It's like we're just grown babies, really, <laughs> except babies are happy, whereas we're miserable. <laughs> so we're grown, true. miserable babies. I think that's true. I'm not going to comment on that. I think it's absolutely true. I also think like children as adults, and that's something that I always confront my clients on. Come on, we have a sort of Disneyfication of the mind. You know, we don't eat animals because they're cute and they're sweet and it's all Lion King. If we go in the jungle, we're going to get eaten. There is no cuteness there. It's just the law of the jungle. Uh, no, no, no. Hold on again. Hold on again. I want to hear this one more time. There are multiple layers to this, but the idea of life is not pretty. 
this is actually really deep because this intermediated between the reality of life and our current modern life, right? So most kids until a very late age don't even realize that the little piece of steak that they just ate came from an animal. It just came from the supermarket. It was wrapped in plastic and, you know, it looked like something. And then, you know, we cooked it and we're eating it. And I don't think we realize that, honestly, if you want to eat the steak, you have to imagine that you killed something, right? Absolutely. I love that you said that. And I think more people should go hunting. Hmm. Oh, that's a big statement. Ah, uh, yes. I believe it truly. I believe it truly because when you see an animal die, you are a lot less likely to let waste his or its life. You see, there is a certain connectedness and wholeness and true respect for the life. And it's actually when you begin to eat nose to tail, which means everything and since I was a child, my mom fed us every single part of the animal. Nothing was ever wasted from the brains to the feet to the ears. And that's called nose to tail eating. And it's the opposite of Disneyfication of food where everything needs to be sparkling pink or blue, which is just madness. <laughs> it's actually very raw. It's very primal, right? But it's very natural. It's how our ancestors lived. It's how our ancestors survived. Not only that, I actually think most of the world lives that way. It's, it's just our highly mm. refined Western societies. I mean, if the late Anthony Bourdain taught us anything, it's that the world eats everything, right? It's just to us. Right. I actually don't eat meat mostly. You know, I've not eaten red meat in a very long time, but that's another story. But the truth is, as you rightly said, if an animal gave its life for this, we might as well not waste anything, right? Everywhere you go around the world, in Egypt where I grew up, every part of the animal was turned into a delicious meal, not even disgusting at all. And most of my, my friends who live outside Egypt, when they go back, they go for those things. They consider them delicacies, right? And in China, in you know, most of Asia, yeah, the weirdest things are eaten, but at least they're not wasted. It's not a life that's gone for nothing, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And there is a huge amount of overeating undernourishment in the sense that most of the people I work with are overeater, but they don't get their nutrition right, which is incredible because the food that we're presented by is really meant for human consumption. It's meant oh. to make very rich company even more profitable and to turn us into sugar addicts. That's really what it does. It's food that is chemically engineered to make us want more, but not to make us feel fulfilled. A little bit like our career makes us want more, but never fulfilled. You get more, mm. but you're not fulfilled. Get more, but not fulfilled. Same thing with food. It's just the parallel with junk work and junk food is fascinating. You just want more, even though it's kind of toxic, and you eat more, so you think you're satisfied, but then you have more because you want more, and then you crash, and you never really reach fulfillment because you can never reach fulfillment because it's not empty. really, yeah, yeah completely yeah. empty. So how about the opposite? I mean, veganism, for example, does that work? There's so much noise about that. Mm -hmm. I was curious, and I also, I'll be completely honest, I don't think there is much I haven't tried by way of nutrition because I love to be open-minded and I find it hard to judge anything that I haven't tried or even to comment on anything that I haven't tried, let alone judge. But it's just really an issue of nutritional deficiency. 
you simply cannot have all the nutrition that you need all the vitamins and nutrients that you need on a vegan diet. And this is not me saying that. This is just science. It's actually impossible. You will need to supplement. Yes, of course, we will hear exceptions of extraordinary athletes that are fructivore or vegans. Sure, there will always be exceptions to the rule, but it's not, it's not the human diet. See, it's just not the way our brain can best perform. A lot of my clients have overcome depression by re-including animal fats into their diet. So our brain is 55% cholesterol. Our hormones are fat. Our cells, our cell membrane are made out of fat. So how can a diet that's made out of sugar and carbs and all kind of crabs, forgive my French, <laughs> ever be nutritious for our brain? All right, I think we're going to have to split this into two episodes. There is still so much to talk about. And as I said in the introduction, these are topics that I'm curious, but I know very little about. So join us in part two, where we talk about Charlene's experience of primal diets a little further. We talk about Tantra and the illusion surrounding Tantra or the branding surrounding Tantra in the modern world versus what it really is all about. And hopefully we get you to reconsider and perhaps live your life in a bit more of a primal fashion as opposed to the crazy pace that the modern world is putting us through. Before you go, if you haven't rated this podcast already, please do rate it five stars on Apple Podcasts. It helps us spread the message and you know what to do. If you like an episode, tell your friends about it. If you like the podcast, share about it on social media. Let us uh, get to as many people as we can, because I believe this is a message that a lot can benefit from. Find me on social media, mo underscore gaudet. At Instagram is the easiest, mo gaudet on LinkedIn works really well as well. I'm less active on mo.gaudet.official on Facebook and mgaudet on Twitter, but you can find me there too. And tell me what you think. Send me recommendations for guests or ideas. And yeah, take another 40 minutes with us because I know you might be very busy, but I'm sure you can have a tiny bit of time to slow down. I'll see you on the next episode.